morning. Thank you for allowing myself and my family the honor of being here at Redbud. And uh, just saying Redbud kind of makes me happy. Uh, it's a it's fun drive out here, and uh, we've enjoyed uh, being with you this weekend. Uh, we appreciate Pastor Corey, his wife Jasmine, and the rest of the Redbud family for um, uh, for this entire weekend. It really has uh, blown us away with the hospitality um, and just the desire that you have to learn about people that um, are a little bit different uh, than you are, um, but also to learn about them, not just to get information, uh, but more than that, so that you can be praying for them, so that you can consider uh, how you may share the gospel with them and go to them. And, and as uh, Pastor Corey said, uh, I have a lot of estrogen in my home. I've got a wife and four daughters, a little overrun at times, and so really uh, yesterday was a great opportunity as I was in the, the dress of the Omanis. Um, it, it was long and flowing and white, and for one day wearing a man dress, I felt at home in my own family, so I appreciate that, uh, that opportunity. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're going to spend some time in, in the passage of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in the last part uh, of that chapter, and uh, I'm going to speak to you this morning uh, about being too compassionate to be comfortable. Hopefully that we can be too compassionate to be comfortable. Um, and before we do, before we get into that, it's always good uh, to go to the Lord in prayer uh, to make sure that we honor His Word. So if you'll bow your head and pray with me, and then we'll dive into the Word. So. Father God, we do come to you this morning with gratitude in our hearts for just a new day. Uh, to be together and gather together and, and hear your word. And would we not take that for granted that there are literally uh, millions of people around the globe that cannot meet together. They cannot hear your word. In fact, they've never even seen uh, the Bible in their own language. And so, Lord, as we look into the passage this morning, would we be amazed uh, not only at who you are, but at this great gift, this treasure of the gospel that no man could ever invent. And Lord, I pray for myself that, uh, Lord, it would not be about me or my words, but Lord, would you hide me behind your cross? Would we all sit beneath your word and listen, uh, Holy Spirit, as you use it to perform surgery in our lives? And I do pray for the next little bit, uh, where the words of my mouth and, and the meditations of my heart, would they be pleasing to you? O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. How come? With the state of the world with over 1.6 billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus, how come more people aren't going? This is the question that the student asks. Robertson McQuilkin, former missionary to Japan, was the former president of Columbia International, a known New Testament theologian. He, he begins his book, The Great Omission, with this story from one of his classes as the student cried out and asked this question in a lecture. McQuilkin goes on to share five things, five answers to this question, this question of need versus people going, this question of why, with the state of the world as it is, why are people not going? He gives five answers to the question and if you're like me, uh, just reading these answers, it, it's going to promote an ouch factor. Here's what Robertson McQuilkin says is the answer to the question of how come. First of all, we don't care that much. Second, we don't see very well. Third, we think there must be some other way. 
Fourth, our prayer is peripheral. And finally, he would say that someone is not listening. (laughs) Ouch. But this morning, as we study God's Word together, Matthew chapter 9, I, I believe we'll see a much different picture. In fact, it will be a challenge to all of us. It'll be a challenge to be like, more like Christ. It'll be a challenge to see people as they really are. And for some of us here this morning, it'll be a challenge for some of us to consider going for the first time. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Matthew chapter 9, let us read, starting in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 9, 35 through the end of the chapter says this, And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so as we begin to get into this passage, uh, what, we, what we first kind of come across is, is not a picture of, of somebody or something that is uncaring, but we begin to see this picture of a deep and abiding compassion. We see this as we go into verses 35 and 36. First of all, uh, just to set the stage for this passage, um, it comes at the end of, of a pretty major chunk of Jesus' kind of life and ministry as he's beginning it. And so as we get into these verses, uh, it's kind of a recap, a summary of his ministry. And I think you'll see here in in verse 35 that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of immersion among people. It says here that, that Jesus went throughout all of the cities and all of the villages. That he went to where the people were, no matter where they were, no matter who they were, that where they were, that is where Jesus was. He was always among the people. And in fact, we know that that's one of the main reasons he came in John 1, it says, and that the Word became flesh. And what did the Word do at that point? He dwelt among us. He was with the people. And what was he doing? What does the passage say he was doing among the people? Well, He was ministering to their needs. It says he was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and and healing every disease and affliction. And so while Jesus was among the people, as he was spending time with them, as he was ministering to them, Matthew records this in the next verse, that when he saw the crowds, that he had compassion for them. And one of the things, I, I don't know about you, but, it, but as I study the Scriptures, uh, one of the kind of Bible study tools I use, if I come across something that's um, unique or odd, I usually stop there for a minute and, and kind of ask the question, well, what does this mean? And when I read this and, and I see that Jesus had compassion, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Because it's not very often in, in the Gospels that we get kind of a window into the humanity or, or the emotional state of Jesus. Often He becomes somebody I've just seen in a picture or words on a page, but it says Jesus had compassion. And so I want to stop and look because apparently Jesus was moved because of the people. And, and so up to this point, we talked about this is kind of a recap of his ministry. If you uh, even were to look uh, just a few chapters before, you see how Jesus has been 
um, involved in the lives of people. He's cleansed a leper. He's seen the faith of a centurion. Uh, he has healed uh, men who have been possessed by demons. Uh, somebody couldn't, couldn't walk, and so he healed them. He, he restored a woman who had been bleeding for over 12 years. Uh, he healed blind men. Uh, he's doing all these things, and so Jesus has had a very busy ministry. And ministry that's full of being around people, seeing people, seeing their needs. And so, as we get to this point, this idea of compassion, we see that it's not just an emotional response. And in fact, it's not just a, a, a quick on and off thing that, that fleets in the very moment. That this is a very deep and abiding emotion. And my wife will probably roll her eyes at this point. Uh, because I don't usually do this, but, but the reason I am, the word used here, in the original language, uh, it, it, it's a powerful word. The word is splonknitsamai. Now try to say that. If you try to say that word splonknitsamai, I mean, that, that really gets you going even down into here. You can't just say that and move on. I mean, that's a word that makes you stop. And this word literally means that, this word that they translate compassion literally means that Christ was moved in his very bowels, in, in the center of his being, in his guts. That as Christ saw the people, he was moved. And again, these were more than just emotions. It was something deeply felt, and this is the word that they have translated compassion. And it's an interesting word too, because in the New Testament, this word, this particular word that's been translated compassion, is only used in reference to Jesus. You see this over and over in his life and his ministry as he interacts with people. Uh, in Matthew uh, 14 and uh, Mark chapter 6, when the crowds are following him, uh, more than 5,000, it says that Jesus looked in the crowds and he had compassion for them. This deep seated thing, he saw that they were hungry and they were tired. And so, what did Jesus do? He fed them. In Matthew 20, uh, two blind men call out to him as he is. Uh, around the city of Jericho. And again, Jesus turns to, to them because He had compassion on them. And He healed these men. In Mark one forty one, it says, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out His hand and touched the man. And this wasn't any man. This was a man with leprosy. And if you know anything about that time and that age, you wanted to stay as far away as you could from somebody with that disease. But yet Jesus reached out and touched this man. And so, a total of 12 different times in the New Testament, this word translated as compassion is used, but it's only and always used in reference to Jesus and His ministry. And so, I would say this morning that, that it seems like that this is trying to say that Jesus, our Lord, should serve as a model for us. A model of compassion. A model of compassion that, that begins to happen as we are around people. And, and let me tell you this morning... As my family and I spend a lot of time overseas and in different parts of the world, and um, I've studied different religions, that this model of compassion sets Christianity apart from any of the other world religions. You think about the religion of Hinduism. Instead of giving us a system of compassion, it's giving us a caste system where one strand of society cannot even touch the member of another caste or another strand of society. Uh, animism or the worship of created things and spirits. That hasn't given us a very personal idea of who God is and His compassion. In fact, it's made man 
fearful of the very thing that God created. Or the religion of Islam. In Islam, God is portrayed as one who cannot be trusted, as one who cannot even be known, not as a God of compassion. This really hit home with me. Uh, I was able to meet one of the young men I met uh, during our time in Oman. We're going to call him Earnhardt uh, for this part of the country. Uh, He likes to drive fast, so we'll call him Earnhardt. But this young man, when I met him, here's how he began. He said, you know, a year ago, I was traveling outside of the country, and for the first time, I received the Bible. And it was in my language. It's the first time I had one. I could read it in my language. And so for the last year, my friends and I, we've been going out into the desert at nighttime so nobody else sees us, and we've been trying to figure out what this book means. Can you you help me? Can you tell us? Well, no, I've I've really got somewhere to get it. I'm just... I said, Sure. So we got together the next day and as I sat down with this young man and began to tell him who God was from the Scriptures, who man was, and that we were created to know this God, but because of the sin between us and God, we could not know Him. And yet God wanted mankind to worship and to love Him. And so He sent His Son. He sent His Son not just to tell people, but to live life among people and point them back to God, as I begin telling this young Muslim man about a God that you can know, a God that you can trust, a God who has compassion on you, the tears began to fall down his face. And that was a very remarkable moment because Muslim men don't show that type of emotion in public. And we were in a public place. It was the first time he had ever heard of a God, anything like that. And so please continue to pray for Earnhardt as he considers the claims of Christ. And so the question for us this morning, for you and for me, is how compassionate are you? How compassionate am I? Is my life characterized, is your life characterized by the compassion that we find in Jesus and His life? Or is the compassion that we sometimes feel, is it simply an emotional response that that flees with the next commercial? Or the next thing thing that comes up in our email. So what is the difference then between a fleeting emotion and the deep-seated compassion we see in Jesus? Well, I think the text would tell us that this type of deep-seated compassion is connected to seeing properly. What does it say here? That in verse 36 it says that when Jesus saw, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. So Jesus' response of compassion stemmed from His seeing the crowds, from His being with them. He he didn't simply see faces around Him. He saw something much deeper. He saw the people for who they really were and what their true needs were. In the text, it characterizes the people as harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd. This this idea of harassed, people being harassed, it, it points to something much deeper than just a physical need, although they did have that. Literally, the idea here is that somebody is battered and bruised. They're beaten up. They're mangled. They're worn out. They're tired. These people were harassed. And not only that, it says that they were helpless. Literally, the idea that they have been thrown down to the ground. They have been cast down. They are utterly helpless. And then he moves on to say, not only are they harassed and helpless... They are like sheep 
without a shepherd. That these people are defenseless. They have no one to protect them. They don't have any leadership. The leadership they're supposed to have, as we read throughout the Gospels, is not leading them at all. They don't have direction or purpose. And we know that that's not who the people are supposed to be because if you go back even all the way to Genesis, each and every one of us has a purpose. We find out in Genesis that we were all created for a purpose and that was to worship, to obey God, to bring Him glory. And yet a sin entered the world through our first parents of Adam and Eve that instead of living life to that one purpose, our affections, our desires, instead of being directed to the one who created us, the one to whom we were to worship and obey, they were twisted and turned. And instead, we began to worship gods of our own making, of our own choosing. And unfortunately, many times, that God looks a lot like us. And then we learn that in the beginning of the Scriptures that many people, the lost people, that they worship themselves. Even John Calvin, the famous theologian, says the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. And another writer characterizes a lost person in this way. He says, no one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who belongs there. But their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they are suited. The ultimately lost person is the person who cannot want God. There are countless multitudes of such people, but the fundamental fact about the lost is this. They have become so locked into their own self-worship and denial of God, they cannot want God. And the Scriptures paint even a deeper picture. In Ephesians, we see that before Christ... We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. We could only choose the things that led to death. In Colossians, it even says that we were enemies of God, enemies in our own mind. Again, children of wrath. And in Romans, it talks about that we were suppressors of the truth. That we were ungrateful people. And then it goes on to say that, not unlike each of us in here, lost people are not that different. We all started there. For it says there is no distinction All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for this reason, we see the mission of Jesus. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those lost people. We're sitting here this morning. We've heard this story. And my prayer is that all of us are no, no longer counted among the lost. We are those that follow Jesus. But yet, there are literally billions of people on the planet that are still living life according to their own rules living life as children of wrath. And so, this morning, I think as we see people, we need to see them as Jesus did, not simply as faces, but as people that have a story. Everybody has a story. Behind the smile, deeper than the color of their skin, everyone has a story. Your neighbor has a story. Maybe it's your family member, they've got a story. Or the cashier in the grocery store, or your co-worker. And what about the Muslim that you're shopping next to in Walmart? Or maybe the Buddhist who lives in a country 
And in a city that you can't even pronounce, they live far away, but yet even they have a much deeper story than simply what we see in their face. And so my question again this morning for you and for me would be, have we taken time to get to know them? Are you able to see people clearly just as Jesus sees them? How do you see people? And I would say that the only way to really know someone, the only way to really get to know them and their story, is to spend time with them. To live life with them and perhaps to go to them if you've never been. And so as we begin to see people for who they really are, then what should be our response? And again in the text, I believe we will see that our response should be one of prayer. It says that after Jesus had seen the people, He had compassion. He characterizes them. Then in verse 37, He says to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. And so, another way to study the Scriptures, you see a therefore in there. What is the therefore? What's the therefore? Therefore, we see here... Because of how the people have been characterized, they are harassed, they are helpless, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says, pray. And not just any prayer, but He gives some specifics. He says, first, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Because it is His harvest. It's not just dependent on us that He is the God of each and every one of these people. So pray to Him. And one day there is going to be a harvest. Then He goes on to say, and don't just pray for anything, not even just pray for opportunities. He says, pray for laborers. Because the opportunities abound. That's not the problem. The field is wide unto harvest. The harvest is plentiful. And we can even, we know that that's true not just in this passage, but even in the world that we live in. Of the 6.8 billion people on this planet, 4 billion could not even read a Bible if they had one. Almost 2 billion could walk for days on end and never come across a church. They would never turn on the radio and hear a Christian song. Yet they walk around, many of them, wanting to know the one true God. Wanting to find somebody that can tell them about Christ. And many people are beaten down emotionally and spiritually, even physically. It says that the average person, probably about a billion people on the planet, live on less than $2 a day. Yet if I were to go to my local coffee shop, the average cost of a coffee drink is about two fifty, just for one drinking, and they live on this per day. It says that it's estimated that $13 billion, if, if people could just give $13 billion, it would provide basic health care and nutrition to everyone in the developing world. $13 billion. Yet each year, just in the U.S. and Europe alone, we spend $17 billion on food for our dogs and cats. The harvest is plentiful. We received this from a young family who we know, and they're in South Asia, and they wrote this with the title, Laborers for the Harvest. This is just one area where they live. Our state is vast. It's a vast spiritual harvest field. According to our figures, there's a Christian presence, doesn't mean a church, but just a Christian presence, in only 8,000 out of the 54,000 villages. 
That means that 46,000 villages do not have any kind of Christian presence. Only about 1% of the 70 million people that we live among would call themselves Christian. 1% out of 70 million. So the harvest is indeed plentiful. And the laborers are few. And it's not just on a global perspective. Even here in North Carolina, they say that in the local schools, the public schools, over 234 languages are spoken in North Carolina public schools alone. The harvest is plentiful. And so we see the problem is not the lack of a harvest field. We do have a great harvest field. It's the small numbers of labor, small numbers of laborers, of people who are willing to go into these fields. And so we see here that the Lord says, yes, you are to pray. You pray to the Lord of the harvest. You pray for laborers. And not just, again, any prayer. You pray earnestly. And honestly, at that point, this whole idea of praying earnestly, often this is where missions get short-circuited in my life and in many people's lives that that too often it's our comfort that gets in the way of earnestly praying it gets in our way of living a life of sacrifice for some of us it would be in the area of giving that that giving becomes something that we do simply from our excess or our reserves it could be not just money it could be our time you know have you have i ever considered Uh, going to another place, another country, specifically to get to know them and tell them the gospel. Well, I've got two weeks of vacation. I could probably give three days out of that. Or maybe it is financial. This is a great time of year to give, but but often it's, well, how much can I give? Well, how much is my bonus check going to be? Or how much of a tax write-off is this? But I believe Christ has called us to live lives of sacrifice, not of comfort. That often we stay in the shallow ends of Christianity and are content with comfort when the Lord wants us to abandon the edges and plunge into a life of sacrifice as as we trust Him. As one writer put it this way, he calls it a life of voluntary displacement. He says that the Gospels over and over confront us with the persistent voice inviting us to move away from where it is comfortable, from where we want to stay, from where we feel at home. That we live lives voluntarily, not as comfort seekers, but as Christ seekers, as people that live a life of sacrifice. And it's not just giving. Again, Christ is speaking here of our prayers that often my prayers, our prayers become isolated. And half-hearted. We may pray for a missionary on their birthday, which is good to do. uh, But we don't remember them after that day. Or we pray for the lost people when we know we're supposed to. After a great weekend like this, we may pray for a day or two or a week. And then we quickly forget. And if you're like me too often when I'm praying for lost people, I become very removed from my prayers. It becomes about me praying for them over there. And I'm over here. And those people began to just be a statistic or a picture that I've seen. That there's a fundamental disconnect between us and them. Yet it says in this passage that we are to pray, not just pray, but we are to pray earnestly. And so, how do we know if our prayers are earnest? It's a great question. How do, how do I know? Well, I don't have the full answer, but I do think one of the core ways you can tell is as you pray, are you willing to be the answer to your prayers? Or more pointedly, 
As we're told here to pray to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers, are you willing that the Lord of the harvest would answer your prayers for more laborers by sending you as a laborer? And isn't this exactly what Jesus does? If you go down, and I love the sense of humor in some ways in this, uh, into verse uh, chapter 10, he's kind of laid this out before his disciples, and then it says he called to him his 12 disciples, he gave them authority, names them, and then in verse 5, and these 12 Jesus sent out. The very people he was saying, you need to, to pray for more laborers. Well, go ahead. You're the, part of the answer to that prayer. And so Jesus is therefore entrusting to His followers, His disciples, His ministry. And of course, He doesn't just do it here in a specific instance. We see later on in that familiar passage, Matthew 28, 18-20, that He does this even on a more global scale. And not just to His disciples then, but to all Christ followers. That He entrusts His ministry to them, to us. And so therefore, I would say as disciples of Jesus, as Christ followers... Our identity is as sent people. We are sent people. In the same way that Christ came and He sent His disciples, He's also saying, as you follow Me, you will be sent. And so the only question is not, should I go, but where is it that Christ has sent me? To what people does He want me to live among? Does he want me to live among people here in Castalia? Or maybe it's even Raleigh. It's a foreign country to some. Maybe it's in Toronto. Maybe it's in Oman. Maybe it's somewhere in China. I don't know. Because we are sent people, but we need to answer the question, where has Christ sent me and to what people? And we do this because of the amazing gift and the amazing model of Christ. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so until we reach a point of seeing people as they really are, until we pick up the mantle of compassion so modeled by our Lord Jesus Christ, and until we lay down our comforts and live not for ourselves, but for the One who died and was raised for us, then our prayers will be nothing more than routine and empty ritual. Not unlike the people we lived among for a number of years. And so we began this morning... Be done, I guess. We'll close up. Uh, we began this morning with five answers to the question of, of why, how come people are not going when the need is so great? And I believe as we've looked in God's Word this morning that Matthew 9 has shown us that we are not to be a people who don't care that much, but we are to be a compassionate people. We are not to be a people who don't see very well, but we are to be ones who see people as they really are. We see them in their need, not just physically, but spiritually. We are not to be a people that think there must be some other way because Jesus has commanded all of His followers, you and me, to go and to go to the nations, wherever that might be. And we're not to be a people whose prayers are peripheral, but we need to pray earnestly. And finally, we are not to be someone who isn't listening, 
but those who, who listen. And so this morning I would say, Red Bud, there is a historic opportunity this morning. Even right here as we're gathered together. Because over a hundred years ago, the year was 1823, and there was a group of people that came together to form a church, and that church was called Red Bud. Founded in 1823, and as far, talking to your pastor, again, we don't have all the history of the church, but as far as we know, there has not been a long-term laborer sent into the field from Red Bud. And so I would ask, are you listening this morning? The Lord of the harvest, He is calling you, yes, to give. And you'll have ample opportunity this season with Lottie Moon. And maybe for you it would be giving at a different level than you ever have, even sacrificially. And yes, we, are, we see from this passage, we are to pray. And for some of you it may be that I'm going to commit to praying constantly. And if you would like to do that by way of reminder, especially for the children who are good at reminding us of things. Uh, my daughter has got some uh, prayer reminders for Amon up front. And so if you want to come, especially the children, and grab one to remember to pray. But I would say for some this morning, he may actually be calling you. And even this morning as you're sitting there, your heart may resonate with Hudson Taylor, that great missionary to China. In a letter to his mother, he wrote this. He says, Though comfortable as regards temporal matters, and happy and thankful, I feel I need your prayers. Oh, mother, I cannot tell you, I cannot describe how I long to be a missionary, to carry the glad tidings to poor, perishing sinners, to spend and be spent for Him who died for me. Think of the millions of souls in China every year passing without God and without hope into eternity. Oh, let us look with compassion on this multitude. God has been merciful to us. Let us be like Him. And so whether you're 15, 25, 55, whether you're single or married, whether you're young or old, the Lord of the harvest just might be calling you to go. To go to a people and see them as they really are. Calling you to learn a new and a different language. To live in a different culture. He may be calling you as a laborer into the harvest field. The question is, will you be someone that listens? Let's pray. Lord God, we once again come to you this morning and you are the God of the nations. And Lord, we would not be here were it not for the precious gift of your Son, the message of the Gospel. And so I pray this morning for myself and for everyone here that we would be people who look like your Son or a compassionate people. We would be a people who desire to see people as they really are. And that we would see that the way that you have chosen is to send your followers to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And that as we pray, that we would be willing to be an answer to that prayer. And Lord, I do pray that we would be captivated by, we would be motivated by, and you may choose to use us to be a part of that grand vision that we read about this morning in Revelation 5, of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing your praises. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name.